hearts. There's a prayer in our hearts as well, Lord. Draw near to us as we draw near to you. Lord, may we never take it for granted that you love us, that you're committed to us, that you love us with an everlasting love. Let us not take that lightly. And Lord, our our response, our proper response is to offer our love to you. Help us to love you better with a pure heart. Help us to love you not just because of what you can do for us or give to us, but because of who you are. And may we offer ourselves and all that we are and all that we have to you. This is our offering. This is our living sacrifice. May it be acceptable in your sight. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God who communicates with us, that you've given us your word and your spirit. And I pray now that you would uh, reveal yourself to us and draw us ever nearer to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, welcome to our 1030 service. Glad you all made it. Yeah, we're trying this special summer schedule uh, for seven weeks this summer. Services at 8.30 and 10.30, and I'm glad you're here. Um, We are uh, kind of in the middle of this uh, six-week series. It's called A Life Well Invested. A Life Well Invested. Uh, There's some message notes in your program if you want to take those out. And this really, you know, when you think about it, we're talking about a life well invested, and we're talking about the investment of some gifts that God has given to us. Did you know God's given you gifts? And uh, three of the gifts that we're talking about during these six weeks are God has given to us the gift of our, our treasure, our resources. God has given to us the gift of our time. And, the God, and God has given to us our, our talents as well, our skills or expertise or spiritual gifts. So if you think about it, God has invested in you, right? He's invested in you. And, and he's given to you uh, resources and treasures. He's given to you time and he's given to you talents and abilities, and then we're to steward them. Stewardship means we don't own them, we don't possess them, but we're entrusted with them, with time, talents, and treasure, and then we want to invest it for God and for His purposes. So today, we're going to talk about time, today and next Sunday, in fact. Uh, Today, I want to talk about this, if I only had the time. You ever felt that way? Have you ever said that? If I only had the time. I I once saw this illustration, and it it was a big circle, and inside the circle, it had one word, and the word was to it, T-U-I-T. You know that word? And, and, and basically, the idea was this. This is something everybody wants, and, and everybody uh, thinks that if they had just had it, their lives would be better. And, and you know what it is? It's around to it. If I, I'll just do it when I get around to it. <laughs> if I could just get around to it. Uh, so much would be better. I'd be so much more productive. I would do great things with my life if I could just get around to it. Okay, well, let's talk about this if I only had the time. Do you, do you see uh, at the top of your notes there, I put this quote from uh, leadership guru John Maxwell. Uh, Everyone receives an equal supply of time. The only difference between us is the way that we invest it. Each week brings us 168 golden hours. 
You could be rich or poor, black or white. Everybody's going to have the same 168 hours. We use approximately 56 hours for sleep and recuperation. We spend approximately 24 hours a week for eating and personal duties. We spend approximately 50 hours earning a living. We have approximately 38 hours left to spend just as we wish. But how do we spend them? You know, this idea about if I only had the time, it kind of reminds me of the busyness of modern life. And uh, <clears throat> you know what really struck me about uh, living a busy life? It's when my daughter, you know, my daughters are up here leading in worship today, but my older daughter, the one playing the keyboard, uh, when, when Rachel was two years old, <clears throat> uh, Tina and I went to this pastor's retreat. There was just about a dozen pastors there, and we took Rachel with us. She was two years old, and uh, she was the only child there. It was just a bunch of pastors and their spouses. And during one of the breaks, you know, we're just standing around and having coffee or whatever, and little two-year-old Rachel started walking around in a circle with a, a worried look on her face and a furrowed brow, and she's, she's saying these words to herself, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I have to go to my office. <laughs> and, and we're all laughing, it was really cute and everything, and obviously very memorable to me. But you know why it was memorable? Not just because it was cute and funny. It was memorable to me because that was a very sobering moment. Because I'm thinking, where did she learn that? <laughs> you know, where did she hear that? You know, kids at that age, they're just, they're just imitating what they see and they're just repeating what they hear. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, is that, is that how she thinks of me? Daddy is so busy, he's always going to his office. And back then, actually, uh, our, my office was uh, in our home. It was one of, our, one of our bedrooms. But I'm thinking, man, I don't want this little girl to grow up and that's going to be her lasting impression of her dad is, dad was always so busy, always going to his office. So it was a sobering moment for me. It was like a wake-up call, like, okay, I am busy. I have a lot of things to do, and I have a lot of responsibilities, and I have varied interests. But I, I don't want my kids to just grow up thinking, oh, dad was too busy and always busy. And especially, I didn't want them to think he's too busy for us, for me. So this thing about busyness is... Um, it's been a, a big issue. It's heavy on my heart. Ever since that day, I have perfectly managed my time. <laughs> now, you know that's not true, right? Have you? Have you perfectly managed your time? A, a lot of us struggle with this. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things I read was uh, somebody was saying this. The question for us in our day and age is not, will my calendar be full? Because most of us, we're going to have full calendars, right? The question is not, will my calendar be full? The question is, who will fill my calendar? Or what will fill my calendar? Because we all have that 168 golden hours a week, right? And I don't know how many time, hours you really have of free time. John Maxwell says maybe about 30 hours of discretionary time. I don't know what it is for you. But, but that time is a precious gift. And when you get a gift from God, you're supposed to do this. Uh, you receive it gratefully. And then hopefully you handle it with care. So this is a gift. God has given to you. I want you to think about stewardship. We're talking about stewardship of treasures, which uh, Pastor Trenton and Pastor Abe talked about the last couple of weeks. We're talking about the stewardship of our time, which I'm talking about today and next Sunday. And then uh, two weeks from today, we'll have Pastor Abe talk to us about the stewardship of our talents and our abilities and how we can steward those well. But I want you to think about this. How you invest or how you steward your time, your treasure, and your talents is really going to write the story of your life. Isn't that right? I mean, how you use these three gifts God has given you will make up your day and the things you invest in and how you spend your life. So this is a very vital and crucial issue.
So let me talk about this a little bit. I'm going to try to talk about it. This is not a time management seminar, and boy, I'd be the worst person to, to lead a time management seminar. But I want to talk with you a little bit about the stewardship of time biblically. And the first point I want to make, these are on, this is on your message notes, our time is a gift from God. Our time is a gift from God, and therefore we need to be good stewards of it. Our time is a gift from God, and we need to be good stewards of it. Look at this passage from the, uh, the letter of James. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Sounds okay, sounds reasonable, right? Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Talking about how fleeting life is, right? Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. I've often read that last line, but I, you know, I was rethinking it this week in terms of, if you read it in context, I think it's talking about the usage of, of, of our time. If you know the good that you ought to do, but you don't do it or you don't get around to it, then that's something sinful. You know, there's two kinds of sins, right? There's a sense of, of commission when you, when you commit a sin, uh, you do something you shouldn't have done, and then there's also sins of omission, where you, you don't do something that you ought to have done, right? And I, and I don't know about you, I think for some of us, the greater danger is sins of omission, and that we don't want to get to the end of our life and think, you know, I never really got around to doing the most important things, the most significant things, the things that God has called me to do. Uh, yesterday morning, I was out at the cemetery. I was out at Sunset Hills, and I pr uh, was presiding over a memorial service. One of the guys in our church, uh, his father passed away, and, and I... I was leading the service yesterday, and, and then after the service, we went out to the burial site and had a little burial service, and, and I think it was a good tribute to a good man. I, I didn't really know him, but he was 82 years old, and I got to thinking about, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to live or how long you're going to live. Uh, if, if I live to be 82, I, I don't have that many years left. I've got about 20 years left, and I got to thinking, you know, Life is fragile, life is fleeting. The man who passed away, he was not sick until the last two weeks. It's not like this was a lengthy illness or something. And in two weeks he got sick and then he passed away. So I got to thinking about this. You know, when you come to the end of your life and whenever that is, what's really going to matter? Are you going to say, man, I sure wish I spent more hours at the office. You know, I sure wish I had watched more football games. You know, what's going to really matter at that point? You know, I like what James Dobson says. He said, when you come to the end of your life, the only thing that will matter will be who you loved and who loved you and what you did in service for your creator. I think, well, that's pretty good advice. When you come to the end of your life, what's really going to matter? Who you loved, who loved you, what you did in service for your creator. Now, here's what James is talking about in James chapter 4. He says, uh, we have our plans. And this person he's talking about has their plans. I'm going to go to this city. I'm going to spend a year there. I'm going to make this much money. I'm going to carry on this business. And, and here's what James wants to remind us of. I think the Holy Spirit through the writer James wants to remind us of this. What is your life? Life is fleeting. It's fragile. It's like a mist that can vanish at any time. You really don't have control over your life, although we like to think we do. And you can't determine how many years you have. And so life is not really ours to possess it's ours to steward it's a gift from God 
We know that God has given you today, or at least so far today. We don't know if God's going to give you tomorrow. But life is a gift. We're not in control. We don't possess it. We don't own it. Life is a gift from God, and time is a gift from God, and therefore we need to be good stewards of it. So what does that mean? I think it means, yeah, we make our plans. Hopefully we make our plans humbly, prayerfully, that we plan according to God's priorities, not just our wishes. And then we offer it up to God and we hold our plans loosely. Because ultimately we're not in control of our lives, we're not in control of our time. Uh, so we ought to go humbly forward. Our time is a gift from God. We need to be good stewards of it. So God has given you 24 hours this day. He's given you 168 hours this week. How will you use it so that uh, it will be used well? Maybe in a God-honoring way, in a way that really um, invests in things that will last maybe beyond your own life. Our time is a gift from God, and we need to be good stewards of it. Let me, let me make another point here from the Scriptures. This is a little bit different, maybe a little bit counterintuitive. You have enough time to do all that God wants you to do. I will tell you this, you probably don't have enough time to do everything you want to do or that you hope to do. And you may never get to check off everything on your bucket list. But you have enough time to do everything that God wants you to do. Because he's in charge, right? He, he gives us the gift of life. He gives us the gift of our years, the gift of time. And he will give us enough time to do what he wants us to do on this earth. Here's what Jesus said. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 30 to 34. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? He's talking about that God is in control, right? So verse 31, Matthew 6, 31. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Now, pagan here, it's not a derogatory term. It just means a people that live without God, that don't know God, that live without reference to God, that live as if there is no God. Uh, people like that, they run after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And then here's the great priority issue. Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. So you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying there's a lot of things you could give yourself to and a lot of things can you know, preoccupy your days. But he's saying you have enough time to do what God wants you to do. So if you would seek first uh, his kingdom, which means his rule and his reign, his will, that you would live your life uh, submitted to him. Uh, if you would seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, uh, the right way God wants you to live and, and doing the right things in the right way for the right reasons. If you would just submit yourself and, and make him your first priority and live under his kingdom and pursue his kingdom, his rule, his reign for his glory, then he says, you're going to have enough time. God will take care of all the rest of the stuff. It doesn't mean you don't have to make a living or you don't, you know, try to find a good bargain or something. But the idea is this. He says, don't worry. Our lives are so anxious and fearful. And I think often that indicates that we think we're in control when we're really not. And we forget God's in control. That's why Jesus says, why do you worry, O you of little faith? You ever thought about the, uh, the, the tension between faith and worry? It's like the less faith you have, the more you worry you have to have, right? The, the more you have to try to order everything and control everything and predict everything. Uh, the more faith you have, the less you need to worry. You know, Jesus, Jesus I love this. Jesus says, uh, I give you a peace that the world can't give. The world's peace is always circumstantial. 
and therefore fragile and fleeting. He says, I can give you a peace that the world cannot give. And he can give that to us because he really is the Lord. He really is in control. You have enough time to do all that God wants you to do. Now, what does God want you to do? Well, there's different specifics for us, but there are certain things that are very clear. Like, we know that God wants us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. That's clear, right? In fact, that'll take a whole lifetime, right? We know that God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Those are, Jesus says, those are the two greatest commandments. In fact, Jesus said, all the law and the prophets can be summed up in those two commandments. It's like Christianity made simple. <laughs> love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. Another thing that God says to do in, in the Bible is in one of the Old Testament prophets, uh, the prophet Micah. In chapter 6, verse 8, he says, He has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Christianity made simple, right? What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy or kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Now, here's what I want us to understand. We've got time to do that. We've got time to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We've got time to do everything God wants us to do with our lives. And we don't have time to do everything we want to do, though. So here's the tragedy. What if you come to the end of your life, and, and it's not a sudden, unexpected death. You, you have some lingering days to reflect on your life and, and evaluate your life and what you did with it and how you spent it. And, and, you, and you're... You're lying there awaiting uh, your, your final hours and you're thinking, man, I never really got around to the things that God really called me to do, that he put on my heart. Uh, you know, I did watch a lot of TV and saw some good, you know, basketball games and, uh, you know, had some good times. But the things that were most important on God's heart for me kind of never got around there. You know, and I'm going to have to pray prayers of repentance and confession and Sorry, Lord, I kind of got distracted. I got derailed. and um, It's going to be sad. It's going to be sad. On the other hand, what if you come to the end of your life and say, Lord, I did not live perfectly, and there's a lot of things I've had to confess along the ways, but as best I could, with your help, the help of your Holy Spirit and the guidance of your word and the support of your family, your community, I really did try to love you with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. I did try to love my neighbor as myself. I did try to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with my God. Lord, forgive me for my shortcomings, but, uh, you know, that would be a life well lived. Whether it's 20 years or, or 80 years, that would be a life well lived. You have enough time to do all that God wants you to do. But it means you've got to go to him and ask him and, and look to him and, and uh, you know, discover his priorities and, and embrace them for yourself. Uh, someone said this, he says, if you take care of the things on God's heart, then God will take care of the things on your heart. Now, I don't know if you believe that. Either you believe it or you don't. But if you believe that, you'll live differently, right? Won't it actually ease some of the things that we worry about, like who's going to win the NBA title or something? You know, won't it actually help us to focus on the highest and the best and the most important things? If you take care of the things on God's heart, God will take care of the things on your heart. You know another way to say that? Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. 
You think about your life like a big circle. And if Jesus Christ is at the center of your life, then the circumference will take care of itself, right? But if he's not at the center, if you're at the center, then you've got to be the general manager of the universe, right? You've got to keep everything spinning and everything juggling, and, and you've got to try to make all the outcomes right, and you're going to live a life of stress and anxiety and have very little peace. But if Jesus Christ is at the center of your life, then the circumference will take care of itself. You have enough time to do what God wants you to do. Okay, let me give you another point about uh, the stewardship of time. This is point number three. Come apart, come apart and rest, or you'll come apart. Come apart and rest, or you'll come apart. Uh, now, this is one of the things I notice about Jesus. He lived a very busy life. We don't know a lot about his first 30 years. We get glimpses of his first 30 years. But around 30 years old, he entered into public ministry, and his public ministry lasted about three years. And during that time, he launched a movement that has changed the world. There's approximately, I think, 1.5 to 2 billion people in the world today that name the name of Jesus. They're not all devout followers, but they would say they're Christians. And, and that movement started during a three-year public ministry. So Jesus was busy, right? If you read the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, you will see uh, the story of a very busy man. He was healing people, casting out demons, proclaiming the gospel. He was walking here and there. He never took the bus or a cab or even, you know, uh, he never had a car. But he, he, he gave his life totally uh, to serving his father and fulfilling his mission. And he knew what it was. I remember Jesus says in John 10, verse 10, he says, I have come that they may have life, that you may have life. I, may, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Another place Jesus is talking about himself, he calls himself sometimes the Son of Man. And he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You, you look in the, in the Bible, you see these certain points where Jesus gives kind of his mission statement. He says, I've come not to do my will, but my, my Father's will. So he, he had a, a clarity about his life, and he's not going to heal everybody. He's not going to cast all the demons out, but he listened to the Father and waited on the Father, and he did exactly what his Father wanted him to do. Come apart and rest, or you'll come apart. Here, uh, Matthew 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, and what had happened was a, a tragedy. What had happened was his relative, John the Baptist, had been beheaded, executed by King Herod. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the town. Jesus, he knew what it was to grieve. He knew what it was to experienced tragedy and loss and he went and got alone and and sometimes we need to do that too we just need to get alone get alone with yourself get alone with your god uh, in later on in that chapter matthew 14 verse 23 it says after he had dismissed them dismissed the crowd and even his disciples after he had dismissed them he jesus went up on a mountainside by himself to pray and later that night he was there alone the Gospels tell us that sometimes Jesus prayed all night. And you think, well, wasn't he God? Yeah, he was God, but he was in this fellowship uh, between the, God the Father and God the Son, and he was in communion with God the Father, and he would be spending time. I, I like to call it uh, 
time alone with God, unhurried time alone with God, that Jesus himself had to spend time alone, unhurried time alone with the Father. He would seek him, he would listen to him, he would just enjoy fellowship. And I think that was one of the secrets to how he could be so focused. I want you to think about this. If you spend unhurried time alone with God, let me tell you three things that can happen. One is God can refresh you. A long time ago, there was this old Coca-Cola commercial that, that, that goes like this. <sighs> the pause that refreshes. Remember that? And I'm thinking, the pause that refreshes. You know what? That's what your time with God is supposed to be. Kind of like time out, the pause that refreshes. Uh, get, get with your Heavenly Father. And, and, and not just with your laundry list of things you want Him to do for you, but... But spend time with him. Enjoy fellowship with him. Be in relationship with him. Unhurried time alone with God will refresh us. In Psalm 23, which is one of the passages I read yesterday during the funeral service, and, and many of you know it, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters, the still waters. He restores my soul. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And, and that's one of the most loved passages in all the Bible. It's one of the passages that's read the most at, at, at memorial services. I think it captures this thing like, we want to know that God is not just some impersonal force, and not just the creator, but that he is our shepherd, that he's the one who leads us and protects us and provides for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have everything I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. And I love this. He restores my soul. He refreshes my soul. And some of us in our weary, busy, harried world, that's what we need. We just need refreshment of our souls today. Unhurried time alone with God refreshes our souls. Uh, it refuels us, you know, like a car that, that needs fuel. And, you know, I know some of you have electric cars now, but uh, my car uses this thing called gasoline. And sometimes we let the, the gas tank get too low and there's this letter at the bottom that says E and you don't want to see that, that gauge on the E. You ever heard that people say, oh, I'm just driving on fumes? Not a good way to drive, right? But, but you know, a lot of us have been there. Uh, I'm running on empty. Uh, that's, a, that's a kind of a nerve-wracking way to drive. But you know what? Even worse, it's a nerve-wracking way to live. Running on empty just living off fumes. We need to be refreshed and refueled by the Lord our God. He wants to fill us up, fill us up with himself. Uh, look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 to 31. Isaiah 40, verses 29 to 31. He, that is God, the Lord, the Lord gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall but those who hope in the Lord, this could be translated those who wait on the Lord, those who hope in the Lord or wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow tired. And they will walk and not faint. See, those who wait on the Lord, those who hope in the Lord, they are the ones who renew their strength. They are the ones who get refueled. I don't know about you, but I want to go strong and be passionate for God all the way to the end of my life. I don't know how long that's going to be. But I, I want to still love the Lord. I don't want to be one of those cranky, grouchy people that you know, just lives in the past or no longer has any joy in life. Right? How, how do we live well and fully and vibrantly and passionately all the way to the end? 
I think one of the keys is this. We've got to keep coming back to the Lord and get refreshed by Him. He restores my soul. Right? We've got to keep coming back to the Lord and be refueled by Him as He gives us Himself and as He renews our strength. Uh, also, we've got to come back to the Lord because that's how we stay focused. We get refocused. You know, one of my favorite stories about Jesus, it's from Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 39, and it is the morning after what some scholars say is, was the busiest day of Jesus' life. In Mark chapter 1, it tells this whole story about how Jesus spent uh, the whole day and the evening uh, healing people, casting demons out of people, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And apparently, late into the night, he's working, he's ministering. Now, you would think the next day would be a good day to take the day off, right? The next day would be a good day to sleep in. But this, here's what the scripture says, Mark chapter 135. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And Simon, one of his disciples, Simon and his companions, went to look for him. And when they found him, when they found Jesus, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Like, where have you been, Jesus? You can almost, uh, you know, sense the exasperation and frustration in Simon's voice. saying, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. After what happened yesterday, people getting healed, demons being cast out, people coming to, you know, embrace God and and get their sins forgiven. After yesterday, the news has spread. The whole town is out here. Everybody's looking for you. It's almost as if to say, uh, what are you doing out here in the wilderness? Why are you all alone when so many doors of ministry have been flung wide open for us? It's like, man, time's a-wasting. Tick-tock, Jesus. And here's what Jesus says. Surprising answer. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else. Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. And so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now here's what I want us to see. Tremendous opportunities were all around Jesus right where he was. Tremendous needs even incredible responsiveness to his ministry. You would think this is the time to stay right there and capitalize on the receptiveness of the people and reach the crowds. It's what I would have wanted to do, right? So it's surprising to me that Jesus says, you know what? This is the time to leave. We've got to go around to the other villages. We need to talk with them about the kingdom of God. How does he know that? I mean, it's so counterintuitive. It's so much against modern management and the way we do our business planning. This is what happened. Jesus got up early before it was dark and he goes to pray. God, had, God the Father had revealed to him what the next plan was, what the next day was to be like, and Jesus follows. As you read that passage in Mark 1. It's the only way I can figure out why would Jesus walk away from this incredible opportunity it's like, you know what he's doing? He's keeping in step with the Spirit. He's following the will of his Father. In other words, he's listening well enough that he can stay focused on his mission and not get distracted, even when the distractions are very good and very appealing. So this is what we've got to realize too. We've got to get away and be with God so that we can receive our marching orders from him. Otherwise, what happens? We play to the crowd we live to please people. 
We're always ambitious, trying to seize every opportunity. But it may not be from God. This is what I learned from Jesus. Despite his very full schedule and all the demands on his time, throughout his busy years of ministry, Jesus consistently, persistently would get away to have unhurried time alone with God the Father. And because of that, he's refreshed, he's refueled, he's faithful to the end, and he stays focused on his mission. That's why he could say, you know what, time to go. We've got to go to the other places. That's why he could say, I have come that they would have life and have it to the full. He's not deterred, he's not distracted, because he's in communion with his Father. So what about us? If he needed to be in communion with his Father, if he needed to spend time alone, uh, how much more do we? How much more do we? Okay, let me get on to the last point. Number, number four. Give your best time to the best things. Give your best time to the best things. Uh, and I want to look at this passage. A lot of you know this passage. It's the famous story about the two sisters, Mary and Martha. You know that story? It's in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 and 42, uh, Jesus goes to the home of Martha. Apparently her sister Mary lives there. Uh, we, we learn elsewhere in the scriptures that their brother Lazarus lives with them too. So you got two sisters, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who's not mentioned in this story. Jesus goes to their town. It's not mentioned here, but it's the town of Bethany, two miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus was a frequent guest in their home. Here's what happened on that day, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly, but it seems like Martha's the older sister and Mary's the younger sister. Partly because, you know, it says he went to Martha's house, so likely she's the older one. But also, man, if you look at their personalities, doesn't Martha seem like an oldest child? She's a perfectionist. She's really busy, and she's, uh, you know, going overboard to take care of everything. And, and Mary, she's just sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him. So I don't want to stereotype. But anyway, likely, Martha's the older sister. Uh, Mary's the younger one. Now, here's what happened. Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made, Right? When Jesus shows up at your house, it's not just him. It's, he's got the 12 disciples with him, right? And they're hungry and they're dirty and, you know, somebody's got to feed them and clean the house and all that, right? So Martha's doing that. It says Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made and she came to him, to Jesus, and, and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I mean, can you hear the exasperation? She's irritated. She's resentful. She's bugged, right? I'm working like crazy here trying to take care of you, Jesus, and your disciples, and my sister's not even helping me. Now, ever thought about this? Why didn't Martha just tell Mary herself? Hey, Mary, little help here. Yeah? Uh, why does she have to tell Jesus, Jesus, tell my sister to help me? Okay, now, I've got to speculate a little because the Bible's not that clear on this. I'm wondering if there's some issues between these two sisters. I'm wondering if this younger sister feels like, man, you're always nagging me. And, you know, if Martha were to say anything, maybe it would be like bad blood between them. I don't know. Maybe, and just speculating, maybe Martha has already said several times, hey, Mary, can you help me in the kitchen here? And Mary has not. Who knows? Anyway, Martha now, she's distracted. She's resentful. She's irritated. And she says to Jesus, Jesus... 
don't you care that my sister's not helping? Tell her to help. Now, Jesus gives a surprising answer. Verse 41, Luke 10, 41. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Surprising answer. Does that mean housework isn't important? No. Does it mean cleaning is not important? See, anybody who has seen sibling rivalry can appreciate this irritated tone in Martha's voice. Uh, I mean, she's challenging Jesus. Man, tell my sister to help. Don't you care? Now, I would say this. Martha has gotten a bad rap throughout church history. We always say, don't be like Martha, be like Mary. But to Martha's credit, you know, she's got some wonderful attributes. I mean, Martha, she's probably got some kind of hospitality gift. She's performing a worthy task. She sees something needs to be done, and she takes initiative to do it. I mean, thank God for people like Martha. Otherwise, the house would never get cleaned, and, and there'd be no food for the disciples and, and, the, and the guests. I mean, Martha, she, she's conscientious. She's diligent. She's hardworking. She's using her hospitality gifts to serve other people. It's all good. What's the problem? I think the problem here is Martha has lost focus, right? Martha has, has become irritable. She's become distracted by all the preparations. She has become, Jesus says, you're worried and upset about so many things. And so, uh, you know, you ever thought about this? Like, you could be serving and maybe doing something good for the church or for others, and what is in your heart is really important, right? You could be serving uh, just to help other people because you care about them and you want to make life better for them and you want to uh, express your love to God by serving. Uh, that's cool. But has this ever happened to you? You're serving and then you start to look around and you think, hey, how come they're not serving? You're giving, you think, hey, how come they're not giving? Right? In other words, you start to uh, take your focus off what you're doing and offering up to the Lord, and you're starting to focus on what other people are doing or not doing, and you're comparing yourself with them, and you're getting bugged because they're not you know, giving as much as you, they're not being as generous, they're not serving and sacrificing like you are. I think that's the problem with Martha. She's, getting, she's lost her focus here. She's distracted, she's worried, she's upset, she's resentful, she's complaining. And she has wrongly judged Mary's inaction. She worries too much about what other people are doing or not doing. Now, Jesus actually commends Mary. And not to put down Martha, I don't want to make too big a deal out of that, but, but he commends Mary. He's saying Mary's doing a positive thing. You know what she's doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching. Now, you may not have caught this, but that was a radical thing in their first century culture. Because women were, were not respected. Uh, women were not, could not be instructed. Women had a status uh, like children and sometimes like slaves. Uh, sometimes women were viewed as possessions. And so for this woman, Mary, to sit at the feet of Jesus, the rabbi, and learn from him is actually to bestow honor on her, on her and worth. You know, like black lives matter, and they do, and police lives matter, and they do. And in their culture, uh, Jesus had to show this that women's lives matter that women have dignity and worth, that women can also be disciples of Jesus, followers of him. Women can also uh, learn from him and, and, and can be instructed. And so Jesus wants to affirm that about Mary. He wants to give her honor, and he wants to uh, say, she's done a good thing, and it's not going to be taken away from her. 
I think it's Jesus' way of saying that in God's grace, boundaries don't matter. Ethnic boundaries don't matter. Gender boundaries don't matter. Uh, that instruction in the things of the Lord should be open to everyone and to all of us, regardless of our background. And Mary is showing wisdom because she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. I'm not sure how aware she is at this point, but, but Jesus is not going to be around very much longer. This is a rare opportunity for her to learn from him. And Jesus says, Mary has actually, at this moment at least, chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, I want to put this in a little larger perspective because we're talking about time and the use of our time, the investment of our time, the stewardship of our time. I think that we are Martha and Mary, or at least we should be, right? I, I think that uh, we need to be Martha, the person who is looking out for other people and serving them and offering up her gifts in ministry and service. Uh, there's something good about the heart of Martha, at least until she gets all distracted and, and worried and, and, and all of that. Uh, she's using her gifts to, to serve and to make life better for other people. And, and we, and we got to do that too. Of course, we want to do it without the impatience and irritation of Martha, without the resentment and all of that. But we need to be Martha to do what she's doing, offering up our gifts to the Lord to serve other people. But we need to be Mary also. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, learning from him, uh, willing to spend unhurried time with him and receive our instruction from him. We need to make time to be Martha, and we need to make time to be Mary. So following Jesus, it's, it's like this balanced combination of both service, but also reflection. If you serve without reflection and without time with God and without communion, your service can easily become distracted and irritable and resentful, or you're just running on your own power, and pretty soon you're just running on flame, you know, going on flames, on fumes, and you're running on empty. You know, so just service without reflection is going to leave you empty and dry and ineffective. But reflection, as important as it is, needs to be expressed in service. If we really know the Lord and, and walk with him, then we would say, Lord, here am I, use me, right? Here am I, send me. So we need to be Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, and we need to be Martha offering up our gifts in service to the Lord. Service and reflection together. In other words, we have to pursue, in a sense, think about it this way. In your life's journey, you really need to be on two journeys simultaneously. Not the first half of life one journey and the second half a different journey. Simultaneously, we need to be on two journeys. You know what they are? The journey inward and the journey outward. You need to be on the journey inward, cultivating your inner life with God and your communion with God and and resting in him and learning from him and learning to abide in him and, and to love him and serve him and obey him. We need to have that inner journey. Uh, without that, our outward journey is going to be fragile and, and it's going to be uh, often superficial. But then we need to have the outer journey as well. The inner journey should issue in the outer journey. That when you've really been with the Lord, then you say, Lord, how can I serve you? How can I express my love to you? And, and as we've seen with Jesus, it may mean inconvenience. It may mean suffering. It may mean sacrifice. Two journeys. The journey inward, time in the word, time in prayer, time in solitude, time in silence, time in worship, time for listening, time for journaling. And the journey outward, 
time to look out for others, time to seek the kingdom and advance the kingdom, time to share your faith, time to feed the hungry, time to work for justice, time to express compassion, time to listen to others, time to share the good news of Jesus. I saw this little cartoon once in a leadership journal, and a husband and wife, they're sitting on the sofa together, and, and uh, the husband has his calendar open on his lap, and from the reader's view, we're looking over their shoulders, and, and we can see his calendar. It is so filled with, every day, every hour is filled with activity and commitments and, and all of that, and, and his wife is sitting next to the pastor, and she says, honey, God loves you, and everybody has a plan for your life. Everybody has a plan for your life, right? The question is not, will my calendar be full? It will be, who will fill my calendar? Journey inward, I need to hear from the Lord. What should fill my calendar? What, what should I prioritize in this season of my life? Uh, what should I do more of, and what should I do less of, and what needs to be eliminated so that I can give myself to the highest and the best? And then the journey outward, here am I, Lord. Use me. Take the time that you've given me, I give it to you. Take the treasure and the resources you've given me, I offer them to you. Take the talents that you've invested in me, I want to use them for you and for your glory. Okay, at the bottom of your notes, there's this passage from Ephesians chapter 5. Be very careful then how you live. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. The older translations here used to say, redeeming the time. Making the most of every opportunity, redeeming the time, because the days are evil, and the days are violent, and the days are dark. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Understand it, embrace it, and give yourself to it. Let's pray. Okay, I'm going to give you the gift of a moment in silence as you reflect upon what God might require of you. How are you investing your time? What's good about it? What should you stop doing or do less? What should you do more? Lord, in the 24 hours of this day, in the 168 hours of this week, may we give ourselves to the highest and the best. In Jesus' name, amen.